Well, hello again, Green Belters. It's beloved Sarah Zoltash here. I'm so happy to be asked to share some story with you again. I met lots of you this summer just past at the festival where I offered prayers and joined in many, many more prayers. And this time, the Green Belt people, the festival organising ones, they approached me and asked me to gather together some thoughts, some memories, some experiences to do with Christmas. I thought, well, I, I don't know if I'm the first person you should ask. Aren't there people more qualified? But it seems that my views coming from these broad-ranging influences of Sufism and spell work and Buddhism and many different pathways and practices are just what was being requested. And who am I to say no? To a kind request. So here we go, some stories, some songs, with the special inclusion of a friend that I made at the festival, Abigail Maxwell, a Quaker, offering a blessing for us all just near the end. So I hope you enjoy this voice note and I look forward to seeing you at Greenbelt again soon. In the bleak midwinter, I sat in a shed in Reading, staring at my eyes reflected in a single glazed pane of glass. Frosty wind made moan, and my eyes moaned with loneliness, hollows emptying my swaddled face of light. I wore a dark blue beanie hat over a light blue scarf wrapped around my head, another brown scarf around my neck, my dad's spare winter coat, a hoodie covered in rainbow-coloured dollar signs, an old gift from my first love, a jumper, a second jumper, a T-shirt, a top, a thermal vest, tights, fleece-lined leggings, socks, a second pair of socks, and old, shitty trainers. My hands sheathed against the freezing air in fingerless gloves held a black biro and rested on the notebook in front of me. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Before the tap outside had frozen, I could feel my little kettle without having to go into the house where I might have to face questions about what I was doing up in the shed. Full of robotic equipment left over from my father's business, sitting halfway up the garden that my mother could not manage on her own. The shed was made from breeze blocks and had a pitched roof, was covered in coved plaster painted white with ivy creeping all around it. I used to tell people the shed had been a bomb shelter in the wars. I think that I liked to believe that it could shelter me. I returned from San Francisco in late 2009 with a head full of Mary Jane, 
postgraduate plans, a best friend dying of cancer and the complications of a transatlantic divorce, which is another story altogether. I persuaded my father with promises of wild academic achievement and a few minor tantrums to build me a low wooden shelf along one inside wall of the shed made from old floorboards so that I could have a desk. I spent my days there at that desk, writing, reading, singing, smoking, crying. With a space heater beneath my chair, old curtains stuffed up against the gap under the door to the frigid air outside, I'd get so hungry just from thinking that my mum thought I was having a second growth spurt. It was 2009. I was 24, and with some hindsight, some maturity, and a paradigm shift, I would now say that I was healing though I didn't know that then. I called that time, that place, the Shed of Dreams. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. A foot of snow at one point in Reading. (laughs) Pristine, passionless and temporary. The blanket of snow on snow on snow muffled the sounds that poured out of my throat and lungs that winter in the privacy of the shed of dreams. I sang so loud, as loud as I have ever sung. I would speak to people on the telephone Sometimes for hours, people I had not seen in years or maybe met just once at festivals or when I had performed, where we had seen each other's fire. Now we shared these dark, cold, lonely hours, cackling and rhetoricising our misery, burning those still sweet branches of friendship so that dim beacons could cast light over a world that offered us bitter hope. In the bleak midwinter, long ago, I remembered a Christmas song that I had written. I I don't know when. When I discovered my Christmas song again in the Shed of Dreams in 2009, it was fully formed and flowed through my pipes and over my sorrows. Some time ago, I set myself the challenge to make an offering of my Christmas song at least once each Advent. With glad tiding, anticipating miracles, and awaiting Christ's coming, I offer you, dear Green Belters, my Christmas song now. How can I know If I'm doing the right thing I cry at dawn 
and my phone never rings. If Christmas comes again, I'll do it right with all honor seeking friends. I'll hold their hands and call out that I'd loved enough through every port and storm to fool these few flakes and raise a shadow home. If Christmas comes again, I'll be there to hear you sing the jazz songs you don't know yet in hope that seasons bring Christmas and come again. I promise not to smoke or cry even if I'm the only person who believes that if Christmas comes again, you're where I'll go, you're where I'll be. Oh God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. My friend Eric, who was dying of cancer in San Francisco, had taught me about all sorts of gods in the two years that I had been enfolded in his hippie community in Bernal Heights. Starting with the divine rainbow hummingbirds tattooed across his chest, flying to the purple gods of Mount Shasta, its lilac peaks sacred and adored by native peoples who are said to be descendants of the purple-skinned Lemurians of Atlantis, to the fallen gods, still shining in the eyes of houseless people, San Francisco's most vulnerable human inhabitants, the angels that Eric fed and protected in his work tending to the unhoused for the SF city authorities. As an aside, while I was writing this sentence on a train from Edinburgh to London, I looked out of the window and in that moment saw the angel of the north. Thank you, Eric, for popping your head over my shoulder as I find ways to talk this story about you to them. Eric was sure, before, before I knew, Eric was sure how I believed in gods. Eric was sure how I believed in the divine, 
in bliss and providence and submission. Eric knew because he heard this when I sang. He heard spirit and yearning and peace. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. Eric died in San Francisco a few days into 2010, and I could feel his soul leaving his body, and I could feel his pain, and I cried with my own pain at being separated from the community that surrounded him, surrounded us. Heaven, earth, hope, friendship, all were fleeing from me. There was no glorious, benevolent monarch reigning supreme. No mystical safety net to protect my fall into shadows. No sympathy in the songs of the winter birds shivering on frozen branches. Just me, my sadness and my songs. That winter in the shed of dreams. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. In my shed, with the dreams I was growing, the dreams that Eric had blessed, I struggled to live with my heart. I struggled to live. Feeling guilty, because all Eric had wanted was to live. All Eric had wanted was just not to die. No, he was not at peace when he passed. No, he fought death like a quick lamb being sacrificed in an outdated and barbaric rite. In the end, he was 33. Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, that other martyr, of course, he was all over the TV and radio and films and books and shops and foods and chats of the season. It was Christmas, after all. Sometime during those dark days, when, I don't remember, I heard In the Bleak Midwinter, that monumental Christmas poem by Christina Rossetti, set to music by Gustav Holst. Now... I don't know about you, but my favourite Christmas songs are a bit more jaunty. I like God rest ye merry gentlemen, or that that funny Mariah number. I'm not going to try it now. You know the one I mean. So when In the Bleak floated across my attention, I was surprised by something. My compulsive singing voice seemed to capture and regurgitate the soft, lowing choral number as if it were custard to a hot mince pie. There was something familiar. I realised the song's pious chords and measured lyrical arrangement balanced so restfully on my tongue because I had robbed the melody and woven it into my own Christmas song. How can I know in the bleak mid? Hmm. Hmm. 
From that realisation flowed a memory of another time, a time when I had been told about some other gods and known again the sweet solace of song in the crush of a different sorrow. Enough for him, whom cherubim worship night and day. I was in year five at St Paul's Roman Catholic Primary School in Tilehurst, Reading, which might have been fairly ordinary if I hadn't been an Iranian Muslim. I always tell people that it was my dad's idea of a funny radical joke to send me to a Catholic school, which is one third of the truth. He also wanted us to understand and respect authority, something which religion is supposed to be pretty good at instilling, although in my case it backfired heroically. How about you? My dad also didn't want us to go to the local school because it had a reputation for expelling kids as young as nine years old. We lived in a rough part of town. So I went to St Paul's from the age of five to the age of 11. It was a small faith school with a wide catchment area that had an obligation to take a percentage of the children from other faiths if it wanted to keep receiving state funding, perhaps Protestants or Methodists. I think that was the um, intention with that particular policy condition. Well, my father's simple and enduring advice was to work twice as hard as anyone else, whether they're Catholics or Protestants or Methodists or anyone, or anyone. And to ignore my difference and to make up my own mind about which gods I wanted to believe in if any. I do try my best to follow my father's advice. How about you? By the time I was in year five, I didn't realise that I had been bullied all my life. I just thought that's the way things are. Being blamed for things I haven't done Sent out of class for talking when everyone else is talking too. Having my stuff stolen, crying in the toilets, eating alone. I was miserable. And that was normal. The only time anyone would be nice to me was when I was performing. The school loved singing hymns and putting on passion plays and enacting other gruesome parables and reading passages of books they think were written by this big bearded man in the sky. Though my unbaptized soul was damned for all eternity, no one could question that I sang like an angel, read like a preacher, and acted like the devil herself. Performing made the other kids love me. It made them hate me. It made them bully me. And it made them love me still. This was all I had. I was the first child to learn how to do the sign of the cross, to genuflect, to use a hymn book. I played Joseph, Gabriel, Hades, Old Marley's Ghost. I didn't play Judas, though I was an anti-hero in training. By year five, 
The piano-thwacking school music teacher, Mrs Simmons, and I knew each other's characters rather well. I was her dark star, resented for my behavioural problems, prized for my ability to learn lines and remember stage directions. In the Christmas of my year five, Mrs Simmons had a special job for me for the annual Christmas concert that she was organising at the school's affiliated St Matthew's Church. She wanted me to do a reading of a poem called In the Bleak Midwinter. Breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. I remember feeling deeply embarrassed that I had to say the word breast out loud in front of a church full of parents, as if I wasn't weird enough. While I learned the poem, I kept trying to set it to the tune of green sleeves, a habit which I have not lost to this day when I'm learning lines. Try it. Pick a favourite poem, or maybe one you don't like, and set it to the tune of green sleeves. <laughs> Enough for him, whom angels fall before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Oh, to be adored by camels and asses. On the night of the concert, in the church hall where all the kids were gathered, picking their noses in preparation of being adored by their families, Mrs Simmons took me aside to give me a pep talk. I was the only solo, which was a huge responsibility for a year fiver, and an honour for any child in the eyes of the Lord. So peppy, that Mrs Simmons. She held my upper arm a little too tightly, looked through her thick spectacles straight into my big brown eyes and told me that after I had finished reading, she didn't want to see a dry eye in the house. At that age, I didn't understand her turn of phrase. My parents are Iranian, remember? I grew up speaking two languages and knew more Persian idioms than English. So... I asked her what she meant, and she told me, quite clearly, that she wanted me to read the poem with such powerful emotive effect that everyone in the church would be crying by the end. That was my job, and I was to take it very seriously. God was watching. Angels and archangels may have gathered there along with the rougher half of Catholic Reading, the Irish, the Polish, the many different Africans, the South Americans, the travellers, all gathered on that glisteningly frosty night in mid-December 1994. My hair was fastened back neatly in a low plait, my school tie immaculate. The verses of In the Bleak were handwritten by me with blue fountain pen onto lined A4 pages backed with black sugar paper which had a red crepe paper holly leaf prit sticked onto it. Most of the rest of the holly leaves stuck to people's scripts and hymn sheets were green, except the year sixes and mine, which were red. My red holly leaf trembled under the honour, the responsibility, the eyes of the congregation and their God. 
cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. Now I know the names of many angels. Achiman, Elohim, Mikael, Lucifer, oh, and as many demons. Astaroth, Beelzebub, Cameo, Phoenix. For every Mother Teresa, a Donald Trump. Crazy, crusty, houseless people often come to speak to me. Perhaps they can sense that I'll listen. I do. I listen. I call them the angels on our earth. Think about it. If the angels were among us, don't you think they would stink? Birds' wings stink. All skin and shit and feathers... And they talk nonsense truths, babbling crooked wisdoms against the powers that have crushed their majesty, against the powers they see harming us. Think about that the next time you walk past the stinking, shrugging, wretched ones. Perhaps they are just an angel, and they need your kindness to reach heaven again. But only his mother, in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. Oh, mothers, you have a lot to answer for. Mine was there that night. She came alone because my sister hated me and my father was withholding his attendance as a blow to hurt her in one of their ongoing battles. She sat among the other parents, who had never accepted her because she was a foreigner and not even Catholic. A beautiful, polished, exotic, glittering jewel, my mother. She would sometimes forget not to applaud between the songs and readings and tableau that the children dutifully contrived for the congregation. We do not clap in church, remember? Each act is offered only in worship of the Lord. May my mother irrepressibly offer her happiness in worship of all life. May the Lord bless her joyful celebration of songs sung by children. What can I give him, poor as I am? That night, I did as Mrs Simmons asked, and there was not a dry eye in the house. If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. I wasn't. I was a girl seeking love and acceptance through song, faith and darkness. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. I am neither man nor woman, and praying for wisdom, I read between the lines of the art of religion, the songs, the poems, the acts, the parables and passions, to find resilience in their beauty and accept their beauty first before I judge their creed. As I too hope, I will be accepted. Yet, what I can 
I give him. I give my heart. Yet what I can, I give you. I give my heart. Merry Christmas, everyone.